The Mountain Vista Baptist Church podcast features the preaching and teaching of Pastor Robert Perry and the guest speakers of Mountain Vista Baptist. The purpose of this podcast is to help believers grow, to edify the saints, and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bibles with me, please. Tonight, let's go to Luke chapter number 20. Over the last several weeks... On Sunday nights, Brother uh, Tyler has been bringing the messages, and we're thankful for uh, the series on Mo- the life of Moses that he had brought here over the last six weeks, and we're thankful for uh, his time and preparation for that, and thankful for the opportunity that he had as well. And I'm glad that uh, we have a church that is, uh, is encouraging to people that stand behind this pulpit. Listen. Uh, everyone that comes through this church that pe- preaches behind this pulpit always remarks to how our church family is just receptive to the Word of God as it's delivered, no matter who it is. And uh, you made me five years ago feel right at home. Uh, when I stepped behind this pulpit, I'd think that Brother Tyler probably felt, uh, other than just normal nerves uh, that a, pre- a preacher has, he probably felt comfortable. And everyone that I talk to always says the same thing. You have an easy crowd to preach to. And that makes my job a whole lot easier because I'm not a very good preacher. And so when you sit there and willing to receive it, it makes it a whole lot easier for me. And so I'm thankful for that. And I just want to say thank you uh, for being willing uh, to receive the word no matter who delivers it. It's an encouragement to me as it no doubt was an encouragement to Brother Tyler as well. And I was blessed through his messages and I pray that they were a blessing to you as well. Pray for him. Here in a couple of weeks, he'll be heading off to California again, going a little early because uh, he's got his sister and brother-in-law and their family over there. Uh, just so happens that uh, his uh, brother-in-law's job has him kind of stationed right outside of Lancaster and Palmdale, and so they're going to be able to spend some time together, and so we're excited for him about that. So be in prayer for him, be in prayer for Kristen. She'll be going back. Uh, Michaela will be going back to uh, college as well, and then, of course, uh, uh, Liam will be heading off there for his freshman year, and uh, so be in prayer for these young people as over the next several weeks, they'll be trickling away, and that's, we're sad to see them go, but we're glad to know that the Lord has a plan for their life, and as uh, we've always said, that a church is, uh, a church is, uh, it's, what it accomplishes and its greatness is not found in its seating capacity, but in its sending capacity. And uh, we're thankful for the fact that the Lord is allowing us to be a part in some of these young people's life as he calls them and sends them off into his labor fields. But here in Luke chapter 20, we're going to pick up in verse number 20. And it seems like an eternity since we've been in the book of Luke, but uh, we'll try to remember where we've been as we've been going through this book, segment by segment and verse by verse. We are coming to the week before Christ's crucifixion here, found as uh, recalled by the uh, the the writer, the physician, Luke here. We're going to read verses 20 all the way down to the end of the chapter, verse number 47. So follow along as I read and look at verse number 20 with me here tonight. And they watched him and sent forth spies, which should feign themselves just men, that they might take hold of his words, that they, uh, so they might deliver him unto the power and authority of the governor. And they asked him, saying, Master, we know that thou sayest and teachest rightly, neither acceptest thou the, pers- uh, the person of any, but teachest the way of God truly. Is it lawful for us to give tribute unto Caesar or no? But he perceived their craftiness and said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Show me a penny, whose image and superscription hath, hath it. They answered and said, Caesar's. 
And he said unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's, and unto God the things which be God's. And they could not take hold of his words before the people, and they marveled at his answer and held their peace. Verse number 27. Then came him certain of the Sadducees, which deny that there uh, is any resurrection. And they asked him, saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us, If any man's brother die having a wife, and he die without children, and his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother, there uh, were therefore seven brethren. And the first took a wife and died without children. And the second took her to wife and died, and he died without children. And the third took her, and in like manner the seven also. And they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of them is she? For seven had her to wife. And Jesus answering said unto them, The children of this world marry and are given in marriage, but they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Neither can they die any more, for they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. Now that the dead are raised, even Moses showed at the bush, when he called the Lord, uh, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. For he is not a God of the dead, but of the living, for all live unto him. Then certain of the scribes answering said, Master, thou hast well said. And after that, they durst not ask him any question at all. And he said unto them, How say they that Christ is David's son? And David himself saith in the book of Psalms, uh, The Lord said unto my Lord, uh, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore calleth him Lord. How is he then his son? Then in the audience of all the people he said unto his disciples, Beware of the scribes which desire to walk in long robes and love greetings in the markets and the highest seats in the synagogues and the chief rooms at feast, which devour widows' houses and for a show make long prayers. The same shall receive greater damnation. Our Father, we thank you tonight for the opportunity to gather in your house. And Lord, we thank you for the safety you've given everyone as they've came here tonight with the storms that came through just before the services began. Lord, I ask now that you take and bless this time, that you'd speak through me and give you the words to speak as I deliver the message here tonight, that your spirit would guide us as it's delivered, that our hearts would be in tune with yours. And Lord, again, tonight we want to lift you up and exalt you in all that is done and everything that is accomplished. And we hope that you're and pray that you will accomplish your will in our lives and in our hearts tonight, that your word would speak to us, that it would exalt you to us, that it draws closer to you, and uh, that we'd be able to leave this place tonight better than we came. And that tomorrow we would continue to remember how good of a God you are. And that we would continue to serve you all of our days. And Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come back here to the book of Luke, chapter number 20, closing it out tonight. During his last week before approaching and, and giving his life on the cross, we find that he would, he would teach daily in the temple. And as he taught daily in the temple, uh, as we've already learned uh, in our, our journeys with Jesus through his life here through the book of Luke, uh, the, the priests, the scribes, all of the elders, they would come to Jesus as he was teaching in the temple, uh, and then they would demand to, uh, an answer to his authority. They would desire to see why he had the ability to teach in the way he did, and these religious leaders didn't want to know him 
for a spiritual matter. They didn't want to know him, uh, to know him closer or better. Like the Apostle Paul, for instance, right? In his, gospel, in, in his uh, epistles, he would write that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Paul's desire was just to know God better and to know him more and draw closer to him. But the Pharisees, as they questioned Jesus in the, in the temple, and when they brought uh, questions unto him about his authority and such, they weren't trying to know more of him. They were trying to catch him in something that they could call a lie. They were trying to trip him up. They wanted to lay hands on him, even to destroy him. Uh, but the, the thing is, as we see even in this portion of Scripture, because of the fear of others, because of the fear of men, they needed a more lawful reason to do so. So every turn they, they took, they tried to figure out some way to show that he broke a law, that he was uh, preaching heresies of some way, and uh, they just constantly searched for a reason to accuse him and uh, often resorted to trying to tricking him into doing something worthy of a punishment. And you know what, my friends? Our world today isn't much different than those of the Pharisees. Our world today seems to be constantly trying to test or disprove our Lord trying to say you know, that, uh, well, the Bible can't be true, or uh, there can't be a God, or at the very least, the things that the Bible teach, they might be good moral things to adhere to, but they are not absolute truth. And they're always trying to find a way and cast accusation. For instance, uh, this is, this is uh, about 10 years old now, uh, but back in September of 2012, in an issue of the National Geographic, it carried an article written by a man named Daniel Stone. And it was this article uh, stated about how Harvard historian Karen King found a papyrus fragment which claimed that Jesus had a wife. And just four years later, uh, she con conceded under new evidence, though, that the, pa to the papyrus that she claimed to have found that proved that Jesus had a wife, she had to admit was likely a forgery. Now, why would someone go out of their way having no proof at all, having no evidence at all to back their claim, go as far as to, in a, a national publication in such a way, try to disprove or discredit the things that the Bible itself actually claim and state. Well, it's because Satan has always had the same tactic from the beginning of time. If, we, if he can get man to question God, he's, he's got a foothold. He came into the garden, and what did he do with Eve? Yea, hath God said. He tried to get, get Eve to start questioning whether or not what God said was true. And man, is, uh, under the influence of Satan, still today tries to get people to consider, is what God said true? This passage before us here tonight, as we consider these tempting rulers and their interaction with the, our Lord, this passage shows us, as C.S. Lewis said these words, that Jesus produced mainly three effects in his ministry. Hatred, terror, or adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. There, it, his, his actions and his, his interactions with people, it drew some major feelings, either, either, either adoration for him and great acceptance, maybe hatred, sometimes terror and fear, but there was always an, a, an extreme response to him. 
tonight, I want you to notice as we consider these tempting rulers, notice number one with me, the scribe's challenge. We see this in verses 20 through 26. We won't take time to read all these verses again, as we'll maybe highlight them as we go along here this evening. But the Bible opens up, and as Jesus is there in the temple, we find he has an interaction with the scribes. Now, the scribes were from the tribe of Levi. And if you think back to the 12 tribes there of Israel, that's where the scribes would have came from, and the the tribe of Levi. They were responsible for copying the Scripture and for interpreting the laws during the New Testament times. Of course, we understand that as the Bible was written, as it went on through history, especially the Old Testament in those days, they would have uh, copies of copies of copies of copies, right? Well, who who made those copies? Well, on this day, in Jesus' day, the scribes' responsibility was to take the copies of the Old Testament that they had in hand and copy them again to be able to distribute. Today, we have the, the miracle, literally the miracle of the printing press. We, we, with the bulletins we've had and different handouts we have, we get to put them on a, on a copier over there. We hit a button and they all come out like one right after another. Now, sometimes it jams and sometimes it smears and there's issues along those ways, but it's a whole lot easier than having to sit down and letter by letter and, and, and trace by trace, copy it. That, but that's exactly what the scribes were responsible for in Jesus' day, taking the word of God that they had in that day and copying it over and over again. But notice the tactic, the tactic of the scribes here in verse 20 through 22. Verse number 20 opens up and it says, and they watched him. So they're watching Jesus. They're looking for a way to bring accusation against him. And it says that the scribes sent forth spies, which should feign themselves just men. Now, the tactics of the scribes, we see they're spying there in verse number 20, the first part. And again, in Matthew 22, in verse number 15, it says, Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. They were every step of the way trying to find a way to entangle the Lord, trying to cause problem, trying to cause issue as they went along. And the scribes were diligently watching Christ for his every move, seeing any way that they could trip him up and trying to uh, bring an accusation against him to the Roman government. And they, they went so far, as the Bible says, as to send spies to, to, to spy on him. Now, the Bible uses the word feign. That word feign means to impersonate anyone, to play a part, to, to simulate or to pretend. And notice what the Bible says about these men's pretending. That they sent forth these spies which would feign themselves or pretend they would act like they were what? Just men. Oh, they're just ordinary, regular, old, everyday, run-of-the-mill men and women, right? Just, uh, just blue-collar people. They're just going about their business. People that would you would meet on the street any old day, any old time. It'd be like when we were at the gas station, and we just pull up at the pump, and somebody's on the other side pumping gas. And those are just the plain, old, everyday people we would meet. That's who they sent. They sent these men to try to spy on Jesus that pretended to be just ordinary, everyday men. The problem is, is they weren't. They were hired, hired spies. They were literally chosen for a job, not just to live life, but to get around Jesus, to get a cl- as close to him as possible, and to find fault with him. And these men only appeared to be righteous or regular, but they were really wicked. They could find no fault in Jesus, though. And so they began to look for ways to fabricate an accusation. 
And so we see the tactics of the scribes. We see their spying, but also notice their scheming in verse number 20. It says that they might take hold of his words, that so they might deliver him unto the power and the authority of the governor. And when they couldn't find it, they started asking him questions. Look at verse number 21. They asked him, saying, Master, uh, we know that thou sayest and teachest rightly, neither acceptest thou the person of any, but teachest the way of God truly. Notice their crafty words there. They're like, oh, Lord Jesus Christ, you, we know who you are. We, we, we know you're a, 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 an honest person. We know you're a man of God that preaches the word, word for word. You don't waver on any of it. You just tell the truth all of the time. And they're trying to lift him up as a say, we know that your words are always right, hoping to be able to find him, say something so that they can say, oh, that wasn't right though. And they're scheming and they're, they're trying to trip our Savior up. Again, Matthew 27 and verse number two says, and when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him unto Pontius Pilate, the governor. And eventually they would be able to fabricate enough lies to be able to bring him and stand him before the Roman government. But notice the question was particularly about the Roman government. Look here in verse number 21. It says that he teaches rightly, that he accepts no other person, but teaches the way of God truly. Is it lawful, he says, they say, for us to give what? Tribute. Tribute unto Caesar or no. Now that word tribute, it means especially the annual tax that was levied upon houses and, and lands and persons. And listen, we, we all understand no one likes to pay taxes. No one likes that. But we find that the Lord says we are to follow the laws of the land. We're going to see this as well. And as we've seen the tactics of the scribes, notice the teachings of Christ in verses 23 through 26. After they asked them this question, verse 23, he says, But he perceived their craftiness, said unto them, Why tempt ye me? He says, Show me the penny. He says, Let me see what's on it. He says, what's the superscription on there? What's the picture on it? Whose face is on it? And verse number 24 says, they answered and said, Caesar's. So Jesus' response then is to render unto Caesar that be Caesar's and render unto God that be God's. See, as Jesus perceives all that is going on and begins to teach the lessons of truth and what is right and what is wrong, we see that he is an all-knowing teacher. Because in verse number 23, as we just read it, he perceived their craftiness. He wasn't going to be tempted. He wasn't going to be tripped up. He knew their hearts. He knew what they, where they were coming from. And Jesus perceived that they were trying to trick him and used this used, he used this opportunity to teach them an important lesson. We find he's an all-knowing teacher, but he's also the master of all teachers. Look at verse number 24. As he talks about and says, hey, show me what it is. What's the superscription? And they gave him the answer. Now, the parable of the laborers of the vineyard that we've seen already, it would seem that a, through that, that, uh, that um, parable, it would seem that a denarius or a penny would be an ordinary day uh, uh, pay for a day's wage. We read, we, we read this also in Matthew 20, verses 2 through 13. And uh, the Baker's exegetical commentary of the New Testament says this. It says, under Tiberius, the inscription read, Augustus Tiberius Caesar, son of divine Augustus. See, the Jews, they felt that 
Uh, Caesar's inscription on these coins was a graven image. And therefore, it would prohibit them uh, by law from uh, participating in it, giving tribute in that such a way as well. And so if Jesus supported giving tribute, then guess what? Jesus supported worship of graven images, and they've trapped him. They found, his, they found the loophole. But if he rejected it, though, then they would call him a traitor. They would ring him up on treason over the Roman government. And so they thought, we found the perfect ploy right here. We found the perfect trap. There's no way he's going to escape it. But Jesus expertly answers this question. And he, he doesn't give the scribes either of their desired outcomes. Because he says, listen, whose image is on it? It's Caesar's. So if it's his, if his image is on it, that's his. Give unto him, that's his. But give unto God, that which is God. And as I said, no one enjoys paying taxes, but we have to understand that the Lord has given us clear instructions that we obey the laws of our land. Romans chapter 13 and verses 6 through 7 says, For uh, this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to, uh, to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to who custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom, whom honor. We see the number one, the scribe's challenge. But notice secondly with me this evening, the Sadducees claim. In verses 27 through 40, we pick up, we find as the scribes, they challenge the Lord. Now here comes another group of individuals. They've got questions. They've got claims to bring against the Lord. Now, the Sadducees were a different group of people, where the scribes, they were the ones that would take the Old Testament, the scriptures that they had in those days, they would uh, copy it and preserve it as, as time went on. They were the keeper of the law of that day, uh, in Jesus' day. That was the, the duty of the scribes. The Sadducees, on the other hand, though, they held to the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And because they believed that the Torah, the first five books, was the, actually the only word of God, they did not accept the rest of the Old Testament scriptures that the Jews had of their day. They only accepted the Torah, Genesis uh, uh, through uh, Deuteronomy, I guess it would be, actually. And so the Old Testament passages then that would mention uh, the resurrection, Places like Isaiah that would talk about our Savior, that would be the man of sorrows, acquainted with our grief, the one that would, was despised and rejected, the one that would be uh, beaten and crucified and rise again. All of those portions of scriptures are found elsewhere, outside of Genesis through Deuteronomy. So because of that, the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. And so they, could, they didn't believe that a Messiah would come and give his life and rise again either. But we understand there's passages all throughout the Word of God that promise that Jesus would come and die and rise again. For instance, Job 19 verses 25 through 26 says, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth, and that though after my, uh, my uh, skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Daniel chapter 12 and verse number 2, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, for some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Even in the New Testament, Acts chapter 26 and verse number 8 says, Why should it be? though a thing incredible with you, that God should raise the dead. And after seeing their religious rivals, the scribes, fail to be able to bring accusation against the Lord, they said, Let's, let, me, let me try my, uh, our shot. Let us take our chance at it. 
And then we notice their claim in a foolish question in verse number 27. Then came him, uh, certain of the Sadducees, to, uh, which deny there is any resurrection, and they asked him. Now, to simplify the question, they proposed to him, to Jesus, a, a question, a thought that said, hey, say a man has a wife, and they are, they're married, and, and uh, this man has seven brothers, and uh, the man end up, ends up passing away, and he doesn't have any children of his own. And so according to the Old Testament law, if that were the case, then the brother of the man who passed away was supposed to take that man's wife to be his wife and try to have a child with her to be able to continue his heritage, to continue that family line as well. And so that was the law, and they all knew that. And so the, the Sadducees say, what if a man has a wife and he passes away? But he has seven brothers, so his second brother marries her, and they're not able to have children. And the second brother passes away. So the third brother marries her and tries to have children. They're not able to have children. And he passes away. And it goes on down the line. And all seven men marry this woman. And none of them can have children. But then after all that, the wife passes away. Here's the question, Jesus. Which of those seven men is her, is, is her husband when she gets to heaven? Now, you laugh at that tonight. You're like, why? What? who thinks of these things, right? Like, it's like, did Adam and Eve have a belly button? Like, who thinks of those things? Can God make a rock big enough that even he cannot move? You know, like, who thinks of those kinds of questions? Like, Brother Robin, Brother Tyler this morning. It is, uh, what was it that you asked, asked me? Uh, uh, Judas, right? It was, is Judas an apostle? Because, you know, uh, what about the one that replaced Judas after they cast lots and all of that? And they had questions about all. That was a legitimate question, no doubt. Like those things, as you read in the Bible, they come to your mind and all of that. But sometimes people just come up with the craziest of things. And you're like, my mind doesn't work that way. Uh, I don't know how you came up with that. Here's the Sadducees. Uh, uh, seven brides for seven brothers, or seven husbands for one bride, I guess it would be, right? Uh, but uh, we have uh, uh, seven men. The, the oldest has a wife. He passes away. None of them have a child, child with her. Which one of them is her husband uh, in heaven? Well, they asked this foolish question regarding which brother she had been married to and which one she will continue to be married to in the resurrection, thinking to somehow stump Jesus and to force him to acknowledge that the practical ramifications of a resurrection then would be impossible. But nevertheless, the Sadducees falsely assumed that life here on earth would be no different in life in an eternal state. And Jesus goes on and gives an authoritative answer in verses 34 through 36. And Jesus answering said unto them, The children of this world marry and are given in marriage. But they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, neither can they die anymore. For they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. What Jesus teaches here is that marriage is literally obsolete when we get to heaven. Now listen, I, I believe that when we get to heaven, having the relationship we had here on this earth, we will recognize our loved ones. I believe that. I believe that when we get to... I've never met the Apostle Paul, but I believe I'll know that it's Paul that's standing there with me as we worship the Lord, our, our Savior as well. But we have to understand this, that husbands and wives and, and the mansions the Bible talks about, the streets of gold, that isn't going to be our focus. For all of eternity, our focus is going to be our Savior. 
for all of eternity, we'll be worshiping our Savior. Yeah. And so all of those other things, all the things and the blessings and the joys that God has given us here are just a taste of the greatness of who Jesus is and what we will experience in Him when we stand before Him. So they're asking which man would be your husband, and Jesus simply replies, none of them, because it doesn't work the same way. The, 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 the way that the economy of heaven and the, the, the relationships in heaven aren't going to be exactly the same as it is here on, in earth. In verses 35 through 36, he reminds them that life is eternal in heaven. He uses the phrase equal unto the angels, meaning that they were like the angels. And that Jesus is just simply stating that our lives will be equal to the angels in that we will be deathless beings. And we will no longer need the capacity of a physical relationship of marriage any longer. We won't need that relationship because we'll have Jesus. And Jesus mentions that the only way to have eternal life is to believe on Him. We're reminded of that even in John 1 and verse number 12. But as many as receive Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. John chapter 11, verses 25 through 26 says, Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this, he asked. Notice Jesus' final authority in verses 37 through 40. Now that the dead are raised, even Moses showed at the bush, when he calleth the Lord, the, uh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, uh, for he is not a God of the dead, he says in verse number 38. But of the living, for all live unto him. Then certain of the scribes answering said, Master, thou hast well said. So here's, we had the scribes first trying to challenge Jesus, and they couldn't get it. So the Sadducees said, hey, Sadducees say, get out of the way. Give us our turn. It's, my, my, it's all right, bat. And they get in the batter's box, and they strike out they, three times, swing and a miss, right? And the scribes, they peek, pop up, they, they peep up and say, ha, that's right, Jesus, you sure got them. He says, you said well, Jesus. They said, you said well, Master, verse number 40. And after that, they durst not ask him any questions at all. Man, sealed lips, left them speechless. Jesus, he takes it even a step further, proving to the Sadducees that the resurrection was revealed in law, a fact that the Sadducees denied in their teachings. Because notice that it says, he uses the word showed meaning to disclose or to make known something that was secret, to declare, to tell, to make known, or to indicate. Exodus chapter 3 and verse number 6 is where Jesus is referencing. He said, moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. See, the Lord told Moses that he was the present God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, implying that these men whom he was the God of presently, were alive and well beyond the grave. That's, he said, I am the God of, Isaac, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I, not, I was the God. I am the God of these men. And Jesus took their own scriptures that said, would deny that there is a resurrection and proved to them that those men who were dead at that time were actually alive spiritually in their soul with the Lord forevermore. See, we find that in one sense, God is the God of the living and of the dead. We understand that according to Romans 14, 9. But Jesus is affirming with this statement here that there is life after death. 
Now, I understand this is a Sunday night crowd, and you face the downpour that was just before this service to get here, but we've got to remind ourselves of that. We must realize that this life is not the end. Amen. And there is a life after this death. And when this, life, when this life here on this earth is over, our soul will spend eternity in one of two places. Heaven with our Lord or hell completely separated him for all of eternity. So we've seen this evening the scribe's challenge. We've seen the Sadducees claim. And I love this here, verse, uh, point number three. Notice our Savior's checkmate. Because in verse number 40, or 39 through 47... Again, we'll pick up as we go along. But as the Sadducees concede that uh, he's outsmarted them, that there's no way of being able to figure out a way of, of uh, bringing accusation against him, Jesus then poses a question of his own to the crowd that is there, even to his disciples as they are standing there to prove his deity. He exposes all of their misconceptions here in verses 41 through 44. Notice it says, and he said unto them, how say they that Christ is David's son? And David himself saith in the book of Psalms, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore calleth him Lord. How is he then his son? See, uh, someone has once wrote about this regarding David. This section concludes with a rhetorical question Jesus puts to his questioners, one that is designed to clarify from Scripture who exactly Christ is. See, the re re religious rulers, they knew that God would establish the throne of David through the Messiah, through the Davaic covenants and the promises there. However, they thought that the Messiah would only be a political ruler that came through David's lineage. They were expecting someone to come in, overthrow the Roman government, and literally sit on a physical throne with a crown on his head and rule like all the political powers of that day. They did not realize, though, that the Messiah was more than just some great political ruler, that the Messiah is God himself. The Bible says in Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7, "'For unto us a child is born.'" Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The seal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And he exposes their misconceptions regarding David. He exposes their misconceptions regarding himself even as we continued on through verses 41 through 43. And he uses that, he, he quotes Psalms there, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. See, the crux of the question is this. If the Messiah were a son of David's lineage, then why would David call his son Lord? Now in the, the, uh, the Jewish culture especially, the patriarch, the man of the house, is not going to give authority to the, to the son in such a way. It would be unthinkable. I mean, we've considered the story of the prodigal son, right? And the way that the, the, the father came out and ran unto his son after being despised, after being uh, mocked pretty much, after being made a fool of, it was unheard of 
To think of that a man of such stature, a man of his position would run down the lane to greet his son and to gather him up in his arms. No, it was known in that day that, and in their culture, that men would probably have shunned their son. That they would have stubbed up their nose at their son, thinking, who do you think you are coming back to me? That's why the son said, hey, I'm just going to go back and hope to be a servant. But Jesus was showing the great love of our heavenly father through that example. And here, because of that same type of culture, that same type of thought, he asks, why if, if he's just a son of David, why would he reference him as Lord? Psalm 110 verse 1 says, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. See, the Messiah was more than just a descendant of David. He wasn't like just a, no, a number of other kings. He didn't inherit the throne because of daddy being the ruler before me. See, he was the one who gave David his throne in the first place. He was David's Lord. In Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, he associates Jesus Christ as being more than just a mere human seed of David as well. But he was the very God of Israel, according to Peter through his sermon. Acts chapter 2, verses 34 through 36 says, For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. That word footstool that we've read in several different portions of this scripture. It has the meaning metaphorically to take from the practice of conquerors who would place their feet on the necks of their conquered enemies. And so he's saying until the Lord shows his ultimate might and wonder that would take place. Psalm 47.3 says, He shall subdue the people under us and the nations under our feet. Romans 1, verses 3 through 4 says, Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. John 8, verse 58 says, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. And the, they had a whole total misunderstanding of who their Messiah would be. He wasn't just some other man that was going to be born, but God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. Therefore, Jesus exposes their hypocrisy through this in verses 45 through 47. Here he turns his, his attention to his disciples. He says, Then in the audience of all of the people, he said unto his disciples, Beware of the scribes which desire to walk in long robes, love the greetings in the markets, the highest seat in the synagogues, and the chief rooms at the feast. Why? Because they devour widows' houses, and for a show they make long prayers. But the same, it says, shall receive great damnation. See, he teaches here that hypocrisy is deceptive. You understand that tonight? Hypocrisy is deceptive. He talks about being beware because of their desires, about their way they would pr uh, promote themselves. Again, the Expositor's Bible Commentary says synagogues had stone seats in the front where the authoritative teacher would sit. And that's the seats that they would desire. They wanted to be the, in the seat of prominence, if you may. Luke chapter 14, verses 10 through 11. The Bible says, but when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room. This is what Jesus is teaching, how our response ought to be. Go and sit down in the lowest room, uh, that when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, friend, go up higher. 
Then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. See, instead of having a hypocritical attitude that says I'm better than I actually am and trying to put myself and exalt myself on some platform that I don't deserve, Jesus says let's humble ourselves and realize who we are and ultimately who he is and stand humbly before him. Listen, hypocrisy is deceptive, my friends. It's deceptive because it, I, it, when I'm hypocritical, I promote myself as being something that I'm not. So in essence, I'm trying to tr- tell you that I'm something that I'm not in the way that I act, the way that I speak. Hypocrisy is deceptive also because I also believe my own lies. I believe that I'm actually be- am as good as I promote myself to be. And my friends, my righteousness, the Bible is clear, is as filthy rags. And so I can't allow that to be the case in my life. Verse number 47, he teaches that hypocrisy devours as well. Notice he says there, which devour widows' houses. That word devour, it means to consume, to squander, to waste substance, to strip one of his goods. It says he does, they do that and they do it and show themselves by making long prayers. That word show, it again, it's a meaning a pretext, a alleged reason or a pretended cause to show in pretense. Again, uh, Jameson Fawcett Brown, he would write about this portion of scripture. He said, the scribes took advantage of their helpless condition, uh, of their helpless condition, speaking of the widows and those around them and a confining character to obtain possession of their property, while by their long prayers they made them believe they were actually raised far above filthy lucre. So much the greater damnation, he says, awaits them. See, in verse number 47, we find that hypocrisy at at last brings damnation to the hypocrite. The scribes would be held responsible for taking advantage of those, that they uh, were supposed to be caring for, the common people, because of their fake performance of spirituality. James chapter 3 and verse number 1 says, My brethren, be not many masters, that word masters saying, meaning not to have a desire to have a place of position or teaching. Be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Hey, we're, the Lord is going to hold us accountable for the authority that He allows us to have, the way we handle it, the way we interact with others. And my friends, there in Jesus' day, there were skeptics, there were scores of skeptics that wanted to disprove him, try to trip him up. Today, there are still plenty of people that try to disprove him, that try to trip, would try to trip him up. But regardless of what the world might say, Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus is alive and well. He possesses the power He has the ability to perform miracles and to forgive sin. He opposes, he opposed then, he still opposes today hypocritical attitudes, and he warns that judgment is reserved for those who live in such a way in that way, to be be living hypocritical, to, to try to promote ourselves over someone else when we truly are just sinners in need of a need in need of a savior. And so, my friends, as we've considered these, uh, these authorities, that, these, these rulers that tried to tempt the Lord, I pray that we will have seen uh, how man has constantly tried to oppose the Lord, 
And no matter what angle they come from, he always wins. Because our God is going to be victorious. And let us not fall into the trap that religion can allow to take place. That tells us that somehow because of our deeds or our knowledge or the way we look, that somehow we are better or closer to God because of those things. That's how the scribes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, that's how they lived their life. And Jesus had nothing but harsh words to them about trying to correct their, their life and how they ought to rely on him for everything. Can I invite you to stand to your feet here tonight as we pray and have this time of invitation with our heads bowed and our eyes closed here tonight? I wonder how many here would say, Pastor, I know for sure I'm saved and heaven is my home. And I have been born again. Could I rejoice with you? Would you slip your hand up and write back down? Hands all across the auditorium. and praise the Lord for that. I wonder if there's anyone here tonight who would be honest enough to say, Pastor, I don't know for sure that I'm saved. Again, as we've discussed already, we've got to remember that this life is not all that there is. That in the end, when we take our last breath here physically on this earth, our soul is going to spend eternity somewhere. So if you're here tonight and you'd say, Pastor, I just don't know that I'm saved. I don't know that I've ever been born again. Could I just simply pray for you tonight? If that's you, would you slip your hand up and write back down? Pastor, I don't know that I'm saved. Please pray for me. Then one last question here would say, Pastor, <clears throat> I'm not one that is a skeptic. I'm not one that would, would outright oppose the Lord and his ways. I, I'm a believer. I've been saved. I've been born again. That's not the issue. But in all of the knowledge that I have of my Savior and all the goodness that he's given for giving me a place to be able to learn for, about him and his word and, and to have his word uh, accessible to me day in and day out, I can be guilty of being a little hypocritical at times, playing the part of the Pharisee or like the Sadducees and scribes as we've seen here in the, in the portion of scripture before us. And who are just simply say, Pastor, please pray with me because my heart is not to be a know-it-all, not to be someone that exalts myself to be something that I'm not. My heart truly is just to simply be a, a disciple of Christ, a follower of His. And pastor, would you pray with me that I wouldn't allow God's goodness to be occasion for me to be hypocritical or pharisaical? Because that's not what I desire. I just want the Lord to be exalted and uplifted in my life. Could I pray with you tonight? If that's your heart, would you slip your hand up and write back down? Hands all across the auditorium. I'm going to pray. Then the piano is going to begin to play. And if the Lord spoke into your heart, I want to encourage you, if you're able, to come here to the altar. Maybe we, maybe that we, maybe we just need to simply say, God, I have been that hypocrite. I have been that Pharisee. Lord, please forgive me. Work in my heart. Work in my life. Guide me. I want you to be on display and not me. Maybe we need to just ask the Lord to, to, to continue to work in our lives so that we don't fall into that trap. But however the Lord spoken to your heart, I hope that you'll respond accordingly. Our Father, we thank you for this night. We thank you for your goodness and love. And God, we ask now that you just bless our time together in this invitation. Have your will in your way. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.